John chapter 6. Let's go to John chapter 6 today. Continuing through the miracles of Jesus in the book of John. Last week we looked at John chapter 5 where Jesus healed the paralyzed man. Um, and in the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus goes into a teaching session. And so by the time we come to chapter 6, um, we think that it's most likely a, a, at least a few months, if not maybe even close to a year between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6. There's a little time uh, that passes before we come to chapter 6. And we know that because of the mention of the Passover that's in, in verse 4. But let's pick it up in John chapter 6, verse 1. We'll start there, read down through verse 4. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they, had, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so Jesus had made the trek from Jerusalem in chapter 5 all the way to up into the region of Galilee, specifically the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6. And those crowds that had been following him continued to grow and to grow and to grow. Um, but we'll see later in this story that they really were there because they wanted to see a show. They saw the signs. They saw what Jesus was doing. Um, and they thought in their mind, maybe, just maybe, this might be the Messiah. But I will add that they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah. And we'll see that at the very end of the story. But now we come to the dilemma of the day, verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes, then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So now we find the problem. There's this large crowd there here. They are, it's getting later in the day. Uh, they're a good distance from any town where they might possibly buy enough food, especially one that would feed 5,000 men plus all the women and children. So we're talking about 10 to 15,000 people possibly. And so this morning, I want us to continue looking through this story and to think about how to be used by God, okay? And so the first thing I think we can learn from this story is that to be used by God, trust your Lord over your logic. Now, here's the question I thought of as I was studying this. Why did Jesus turn to Philip and ask him this question? Hey, Philip, where should we buy? Where can we get all this bread? I did a little research into Philip, and I realized that... Uh, that it very well might have been that Jesus turned to Philip because Philip was very near his hometown. He was from a town called Bethsaida. It wasn't far from where they, where they were. And so he knew the region. He knew the towns. He knew the places where they might get bread. He knew what the cost might even be. It would be sort of like if you, if, let's imagine that this was all taking place at Herb Parsons. You know, let's imagine that Jesus had gathered there by the Sea of Herb Parsons. And, uh, and, and, and 5,000 people showed up, and he asked one of us, well, we might say, well, there's a Kroger down the street up here. It's about five to ten minutes down the road, but they're not going to have enough bread for 5,000 people. And, but there's this other place over here, and so I think that was what was going on here is that Philip was the local boy. He was the one from around town. And so it says in verse 7 that we, we read Philip's answer. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, the reason why he brings up 200 denarii, we believe, we think, might have been that that's what they happened to have in the, in the bag. You know, it might have been that Judas had earlier pulled out the money bag and said, here, okay, guys, this is what we got. And so maybe in his mind, Philip knew where they were, and he said, look, I, 
He's probably thinking, you know, we've got 200 denarii, and that's not even going to touch this. But, but the Scripture says that Jesus already knew what he was going to do before he even asked Philip. And, and so this was really more of a test than it was a question. You see, Jesus was testing Philip to see if he would trust his own understanding or if he would trust the Savior. Would he trust his logic or would he trust his Lord? You know, Philip had seen the miracles. He had watched the healings. Inevitably, more things had taken place from the time Jesus healed that paralyzed man until we get to this point. We read from the other Gospels that there were a lot of other healings that took place. And so Philip had seen it all. He knew the power of Jesus, but he was also being overwhelmed by his circumstances. And he allowed those circumstances to outweigh his faith. You know, this might be difficult to grasp, might be hard to understand, but I really do believe that faith requires us many times to go against our calculations, to go against our reasoning, to go against our logic. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. God gave us brains, and he wants us to use our brains. But sometimes our logic can get in the way of serving the Lord. Sometimes we let our minds come up with all these excuses that'll push us to bail out on God's mission. I think about Proverbs chapter 3. You all know this verse most likely. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And then verse 7 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, sometimes in our faith, God calls us to trust and to step out in obedience despite what the numbers say, despite what our eyes may tell us. We, we see this all through Scripture. We see this over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Take, for instance, just a few examples. Take, for instance, Noah. God came to Noah and told Noah to build this massive boat for a worldwide flood that was coming, but yet it had never rained. That took faith, didn't it? That took, that took going against his reasoning. Think about David. David found himself as a boy, as a young, very young man, facing a nine-foot giant in battle. A giant which had scared away every other Israelite. All the other mighty warriors would not face Goliath, but yet David didn't trust his eyes, but trusted his Lord. Think about Mary. An angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to be great with child and it's going to be the Messiah. Now, logic would tell her, virgins don't get pregnant. But yet she trusted. Think about Peter. Peter was in a boat in the middle of a storm, and Jesus looked at him, and he said, Peter said, I want to come to you. And Jesus said, come. And his eyes would tell him, there are waves out there. I can't walk on water, but yet he did. And had any of them trusted their logic, and their eyes over the Lord, they would have missed out on being a part of what God was doing in that moment. They would have been sitting in the boat instead of walking with the Savior. But instead, they trusted. But Philip here, and really the rest of the disciples we learn from the other gospel accounts, had an eye problem. 
They let their eyes outweigh their trust and their faith. A few weeks ago, you know, we, we took our boys to Disney on a vacation. And on one of those days at Disney, um, we went to this park called Animal Kingdom. And uh, we never saw an animal in Animal Kingdom. It was really strange. <laughs> I don't really understand. I, we must not have just gone to the right place. I don't know. But, but um, one, of, one of our boys, Will, is really, he's like the adrenaline junkie. He likes roller coasters and all this kind of stuff. And they have this roller coaster there called uh, Expedition Everest. And it's one of the faster ones at Disney. It's, it, you know, it's, and, uh, and so we were, Kim and I were really excited about this. We had this like reservation, they call it Fast Pass, to be able to ride it. But when we got to it, uh, to do it, uh, both of our boys looked at it and they were terrified. Because it's this giant mountain looking thing and the roller coaster whips its way around the mountain. And unfortunately, they had watched a video on YouTube of it and it really, I guess, scared them when they watched the video. And we kept telling them, you're going to enjoy this. You're going to love this thing. You know, we promise you, we would not put you on anything that would harm you. You're going to enjoy this thing. But they just kept saying, no, we don't want to do it. No, we don't want to do it. No, we don't want to do it. Well, we had already decided before we even got to the park that, that uh, we were going to buy, our, buy the boys a souvenir that night. We were going to let them get something small from one of those little souvenir stands. And so uh, my wife decided to turn it into a little bribery. You know how that works? <laughs> And she told him, she said, well, if Will, for some reason, had gotten his eye on this, like, Mickey Mouse bubble maker, like, bubble machine. You flipped a battery on, and it just blew bubbles all over everybody. Um, and so he really wanted it. So Kim told him, okay, if you'll do this, you can get your bubble machine. Well, then, of course, he's like, okay, I'm doing it. And so he gets in the line. He gets up there, and, and I, she, he rode with her, and uh, she said he was real quiet. He usually, like, yells and screams on rides, but he was real quiet. And in the picture, his eyes were about this big, you know, on the ride. Um, but she said what the funniest part was is that when they got to the end of the ride, um, you know, when it gets to the end and it comes to a stop, and he just goes, whoa, I love it. You know, he starts screaming, and he goes, and I'm getting my bubble maker, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You know, we had to push him because his eyes were telling him no. But his parents were like, you'll love it, I promise. Sometimes our eyes get in the way. Sometimes our eyes would tell us, no, we can't do it. Can't be done. God, you're crazy. Why would you call me to this? When instead we need to trust the Lord who lives in our heart. That when he calls us, wherever he calls us, he'll provide. And so for sometimes that, what that might look like for us, it might look like something like this. It might, it might be something like loving that person. And doing so sacrificially, even when we think it's going to come back to, you know, to backfire on us. It might look something like giving whenever it seems like the, the need is too great and our supply is too low. It might look like sharing the gospel with someone who we might think is beyond saving or who we might think is going to reject anything we possibly say. It might look like going to places to be the hands and feet of Jesus when it's one of those neighborhoods inside the loop when we think, oh, it's just too risky. But what I've realized over the years of studying Scripture is that Jesus never called us to do the safe thing. Self-preservation never seemed to be the way of the Lord. Self-comfort never seemed to be God's way, Jesus' way. He constantly was pushing his followers to get outside of that comfort to serve him. Not to just look for what is safe, but to follow the Savior. 
Now, is that risky? Is it going to cost us on an earthly sense? Most likely, yeah. But the reward is worth it. It makes me think of a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. Uh, he served on the mission field with a team back in, I think it was like the 40s, early 50s um, in Ecuador. Um, he and these men had set out to reach these, these, in, these natives there that had never heard the gospel. They had never heard any account of the gospel. Um, and it, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, Through Gates of Splendor. Um, it was written by Jim's wife, Elizabeth. Uh, we see, unfortunately, that team was killed by those Indians in 1956. They were making inroads, they were making inroads, and something went wrong, and those, those, those Ecuadorian people came and they slaughtered them. Now, you would think story over, game over, it's all done. But instead, his wife and another group kept trying to reach him. You know, Jim Elliott was famous for having said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the interesting thing is, is that the success that Jim didn't see, his wife saw. And many in that tribe came to Christ because they were willing to take a risk, because they looked beyond their comfort, because they looked beyond their safety, and they said, the Savior is calling me to something. It's time to move. Now, the second thing I think we can see from this story is this, is that to be used by God, give him your everything, even when it seems like nothing. Look in verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so Philip and Andrew and the rest of the disciples had, had probably huddled together. I kind of pictured this scene in my mind where they get together and they're talking and, and they're beginning to, to kind of um, analyze the situation and they say, well, oh man, this is way too many people. I, this isn't, you know, and look where we are, guys. We're way out here in the wilderness. I don't think this is going to work. You know, there's really nowhere to buy bread and, and, and we, we don't have enough money. And so I, can, I guess that they kind of sat down and they said, okay, what, what, what assets we got? Okay, we got 200 denarii. And uh, we got five bar loaves and two fish, so that's not enough. So we're just going to have to send them packing, get them out of here. But they had forgot what I think we might want to call miracle math. Jesus plus anything is more than enough. You see, the disciples had greatly underestimated their wealth in Christ. They had underestimated what Jesus could do with whatever we give him. You see, Andrew had found this little boy with this, this little lunch of five loaves and two fish. John tells us it was five barley loaves. Barley loaves were the bread of beasts. It was the cheapest of the cheap. And he had these two fish. They were probably little pickled fish just to make the bread be able to go down because it was so dry. I kind of, in my own mind, envision it being five stale saltine crackers and two Vienna sausage. You know, not much. Not a, very, not a very, you know, highfalutin dinner here. This is, this is the poorest of the poor, the least of the least. And it seemed like nothing to the disciples. Andrew, what did he say? He said, what are this? What is this for so many people? But I think Jesus' point was this. I think he was saying to them, give me your nothing and I will make everything. You know, there's an interesting note here I think we need to see. Jesus didn't have to use this boy's lunch. He didn't need a lunch to do something with. I mean, think about this. He could have made it rain fish from the sky. He's Jesus. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you remember what God did for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness? 
manna from heaven. Jesus could have done that. He could have turned the rocks into bread. He could have done this any other way, but instead he chose to use this measly lunch and to multiply this measly lunch to do a miracle. Why? Because Christ has chosen to work through his people in this world. Think about how God has gone about spreading the gospel. Not messages in the clouds. Not angels trumpeting it from the, from the heavens always. But people. He entrusted the gospel message with people. You know, sometimes we can make a lot of excuses and we can think that we have nothing to offer Jesus. We might say, well, I, I can't sing. I, I can't preach. I, I can't teach. I, I don't have a lot of money. I, I don't have a lot of extra vacation time. Um, I, I'm just not good with words. I'm an introvert or, or whatever. And we think, I can't do anything. I'm just too small to make a difference. Um, I was reminded of an old proverb, though. It says that it sounds like this. If you think that you're too small to make a difference... Try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. You know, you see, it, it, Jesus isn't after our assets or our talents or our abilities or our skills. That's not what Christ needs. This is not like America's Got Talent, Jesus edition. He's not looking to find the most skilled people and, and do something. It's not about our ability whatsoever. It's about our availability. That's all it is. Jesus doesn't need superstars. He needs willing souls who are willing to take a risk and to lay over their lives, regardless of their problems and faults and lacks, knowing that he's more than enough. Rick Warren said it like this. Uh, I think it was in his book, um, um, The Purpose Driven Life. He said, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. That was quite a variety of misfits. But God used each of them in his service. He will use you too if you stop making excuses. Isn't that true? I remember way back when I was in college, I um, felt like God was leading me to do summer missions, and I worked with a camp called World Changers, doing like summer. I was on staff with them. And I remember my very first summer, one of the very first training seminars. You know, you walk into this thing and you think, man, I'm just so talented. They gave me this job. This is awesome. I'm just going to really wow them and all this kind of stuff. And I remember my first boss there looked at us and he said this. He said, Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Qualifies the called. You see, this boy made his pitiful lunch available. And Jesus took it and took care of the rest. And at the end of the day, Jesus already knows what he's going to do in this world, right? Just like he already knew what he was going to do before he ever asked Philip this question. I mean, we've read the end of the book and Jesus wins, right? Amen? 
We know the end. So the question is, how much of a part of that are you going to be? Are you going to be a part of what God is doing? Or are you going to simply watch from the sideline? You know, sometimes we can think that what we do and how God might use us might go unnoticed. It might seem insignificant. It might seem like it's not making a difference. But I think it's only because we don't see the bigger picture. We're not watching this from heaven. I read a story one time. It was a, a reporter that had done this, these interviews with these, these uh, survivors of World War II. And, uh, and this reporter had asked these survivors what they were doing on, this, on one particular day. And in that report, it's the, the, the guy wrote, he said, he said, one sat in a foxhole on this day. Once or twice he saw a German tank drive by and he shot at it. He said other soldiers on this particular day played cards to pass the time. And a few got in some firefights. But for the most part, those soldiers on that one particular day he was asking about had gone about their business just like normal and nothing had seemed to happen that was outside the ordinary. And it wasn't until after the fact that they found out that they had been part of one of the biggest battles of the war, one of the most decisive battles of the war, the Battle of the Bulge. And they had no clue because they were on the ground and they couldn't see what was going on on a bigger scale. You know, sometimes we do the things we do and we serve the Lord and, we, and we, we feel Him calling us to do things and we do it and we think, oh, nobody noticed. How big of a deal was that? We don't, they don't see us how we might encourage that poor soul, pray for that widow, help that person in need, um, counsel with that person who's struggling with that family problem. But it only seems small because of our perspective. But if we can only see God's perspective and how he is working his purpose, bringing his purpose to an end, we would understand that God is doing major things, great things through his church. Now, what was Jesus doing here? This is, I don't know if you know this, but this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. And over in Mark, right at the beginning of this miracle, this is what we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. It says, And when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so Jesus had compassion for these people. Did they misunderstand who he was? A little bit. Were they looking for a different kind of Messiah? Yes. But he still had compassion. He still had a concern, a love for these people. And, che and check this out. Catch this. Because that boy was willing to offer up his lunch, he became the vessel by which Jesus put his compassion on display. And that's what he wants to do through us. If only we'll make ourselves available. Let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 10. Let's read the rest of the miracle. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted and when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so Jesus didn't just make a meal. He made an abundance of a meal. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. I ask you this, what might Jesus want to do through you? What might Jesus want to demonstrate through your life? Today, his compassion, his care, his truth, 
his love, his generosity. You see, when we turn it over to him, when we sacrifice uh, of our, what we have, and say, God, I know this may seem like nothing, but I'm going to give it to you, he can use it to change lives. I mean, what if instead of, what if instead of, of waiting on some feeling to do what God has called us to do, what if instead of, of, of praying and saying, God, I'll do something if ever you'll show me, what if we just did it? Because God's already called us to do it. What if instead of a mindset of sometimes, we adopted a mindset of always? What if instead of, of looking for a green light, we simply go until God says stop? You know, I've, I've had conversations with people before where they'll come up and say, I just don't know if I'm called to go on this mission trip. And I want to look at them and say, how could you not be? God has called us to live on mission. And so go until he says stop instead of stopping until he says go. You know, sometimes we make all these excuses of why we can't do things, but instead of excuses, God just wants us to give unconditional surrender. And when we do so, I promise we'll watch God work. We'll see him do something we never could have imagined. Back when I was in high school, um, just before Christmas break of my junior year, um, I'd gone up to school that day to do some volunteer work uh, with some friends. And on the way to McDonald's after, uh, one of my best friends was in a car wreck that took his life. And uh, we were on our way to grab some lunch. Everybody else got the lunch, and he didn't show. We thought this seemed strange. And, and next thing we know, we get a phone call, and he lost his life. Um, and in those moments, those agonizing hours, as uh, his parents were trying to decide what to do, they decided to donate his organs um, to give life. And, uh, and so the, as the story goes, um, we stayed in contact with the parents. And, and uh, as the story goes, several years later, uh, those parents got a phone call from the transplant people and said, hey, would you like to meet the man that got your son's heart? And of course they said, yes, absolutely. And so they, they came to this place, to the location they had decided on, and they met, and it was just this beautiful reunion. And then my friend's mom asked a very uh, um, particular question. She said, can I listen to your heart? And as she leaned in and as she put her ear to that young man's chest, she heard her son's heart beating once again. A little piece of her was in that, in that man the heartbeat of her son. You know, what I've realized is that God lays opportunities in front of us to serve him every single day. To give of ourself. To lay our lives on the line. To make ourselves unconditionally available to him. And if we will do so, we just might hear the heartbeat of his son in the people we meet. We just might hear Jesus come alive in the hearts of the souls we come in contact with. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a miracle it is that, that, you, did, that you did here through Jesus Christ. And, and what a miracle it is that you work through us. God, we are imperfect people. We have failures, we make mistakes, 
but yet you've chosen to work through us. But you don't force it, God. You you ask us to lay our lives down in front of you. And and so, Father, we come here today saying we we don't have much. We're just people. People who make mistakes. No superstars here. But God, we're laying our lives before you and asking you to do something miraculous with it. Father, I pray for the believers in this room. I pray that if there be some who are are living that prayer, who are are repeating that prayer with me and saying, God, just do something with my life. I pray that we would watch you move. That you would show us that you are more than enough. God, I know it can be frightful to step out in faith. It can seem dangerous. God, what is danger when we're with you, the maker of all heaven and earth? So, Father, work through us. God, I pray that if there be someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be that day that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Father, I pray that you would do with us as you wish, that you would move in hearts today, that there be decisions that need to be made, and whatever it might be, church membership, rededication, that you would give each person the confidence to do so. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?